0: I hate uh, that COVID's keeping so many people away today uh, because we are starting a new series. We've just finished up 52 weeks making our way uh, through the writings of Luke, and we're starting a new series, and the theme for the series are the themes that are in this book, Gentle and Lowly, Lonely, and we have free copies for you in the foyer. If you have not gotten a copy yet, please grab a copy on your way out. Uh, if you and your spouse want to share, that's fine, but we have enough for you each to have one, so feel free to take your own, because if your wife marks it up and you don't like that, you can have your own copy where it's not marked up. We have enough for everybody to have their own copy. would love for you uh, to grab one of these out. You say, I'm not much of a reader. Okay, well, let's change that, all right? Uh, this would be a great way to maybe to, to take on some new reading for the new year. Um, it's, it's not too technical, very easy to read. I think you'll find it very beneficial and helpful. And so grab one of these on your way out if you don't have a copy already. Um, how many of you have had a weird dream recently? Right. Um, some of you, I know that you have weird dreams every night. Some of you, you don't think you've had a dream in years. Right? Um, I very rarely remember my dreams. Scientists, researchers tell us that we dream every night. just Some of us don't remember them. I very rarely remember my dreams, but a few nights ago, I had a dream about a water leak at the church, and in the dream, I had to climb up a ladder to find the leak, and in my dream, I found the leak, and I figured out out everything I would need to go pick up from Lowe's to fix the leak. Then I woke up, and I could remember all of those details, and here's what's really strange. It wasn't our church. It wasn't this church. It was some church I'd never been to before. Maybe it exists somewhere. Maybe it's an amalgamation of all the churches I've been to in my life, but I have no idea where this church was. Some of you were there, but a lot of you weren't, and there were other people I don't know. And then there were people that I know from other areas of my life that you don't know. It's just strange, right? And that's how dreams work. Um, I can still remember well, the things I need to go to Lowe's and buy to fix this non-existent water leak at this non-existent church, And what it speaks to is that our brains have an incredible creative capacity. For some of us, this means that we can create art, means that we can draw, means that we can write, means that we can play instruments, means that we can weld, it means that we can make just an amazing cup of coffee. But for all of us, we're creative in one area, and that's in creating scenarios in our head. We convince ourselves that people are mad at us, we convince ourselves that that text was really passive-aggressive. I know all they said was okay, but it was the way they said okay. It was just a really like short and curt okay. Um, we convince ourselves that people are upset of us when they're not. And we can create scenarios and arguments and frustrations and conversations in our head that have nothing to do with with reality. And I think the same is true about our relationship with God. We can create these scenarios. We can ascribe Him attributes. And they have no basis in reality. Maybe we ascribe Him attributes that we picked up from some other authority figure. Or the personality traits of religious people that we know. But the best thing for us to do. To make sure that we have a clear understanding of of who God is is the same thing that we should do when we're creating those scenarios in our head about another person, we should just go to them and talk to them. And what we should do to make sure that we have a clear view, a clear perspective on who God is is go directly to the source. And Paul was speaking of this in Colossians chapter 2. Look down at verse 6 with me. He says, "You therefore, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him." "...rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all all the fullness of the Godhead bodily." And you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. Paul's writing to the Colossians because there was people who were telling them that to really, know, to really know God, they needed to understand this philosophy. They needed to keep this tradition. They needed to celebrate this holiday. That if they did these things, then they would really understand God. And our ability... To create scenarios, to make stuff up, often bleeds into our religion. This past December at our Freehold Baptist Leadership Conference, um, Jeff Blair, who's a pastor in Oklahoma, he said something I thought was just really profound. He talked about the fact that tradition should receive privilege. In other words, we should give privilege or um, we should give care to tradition that's been handed down to us. But like Ortland says in the book, we should recognize we're neither the first nor the smartest people to read the Bible. And so those traditions that have been handed down to us, they're beneficial, they help us understand, they give us perspective. However, Blair pointed out, we are always reforming. We are always looking to make sure that we aren't following tradition instead of the truth that we're not allowing tradition to lead us away from the person of Christ. We're always reforming because we're always trying to get back to the source, trying to get back to the truth of God's word. And reforming is different from creating. Reforming is uncovering what's already there. Creating is making something new. And the truth that we believe about Jesus is not something we need to create, We merely need to uncover. My job as a pastor is to not create sermons or ideas or concepts or virtues for you, but rather be a steward of the truths that are already here. To be someone who presents them to you in a way that is clear and compelling. And so we're constantly reforming, which means we're removing layers of creation that came before us to get to the truth. If you've ever watched any of these fixer-upper remodeling shows, which I'm sure all of us have, right? Whether we wanted to or not. Maybe we were cornered into it by our spouse. There's that invariable moment where they're remodeling the old fixer-upper and they lift up the carpet and what do they find? Hardwood floors. Oh my goodness, hardwood floors. We can refinish these floors, right? And what is it that people think? Why would they ever cover up these beautiful floors? because at one point carpet was cool <laughs> because at one point everybody just loved the feeling of soft carpet instead of that freezing cold hardwood floor at one point that was hip and the things that we do to remodel our homes to update them we're taking down things that someone at some point thought was awesome it was in it was neat People create rules, and we create reasons of why it's harder than it really is. But there is a purpose in them, usually. Usually we're searching for some type of solution. We're trying to find some way to fix the problem that we're having. Look down at verses 16 18 to see what Paul goes on to say. He would say, Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substances of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly pumped up by his fleshly mind. There are people that they were creating these things because they were so proud of themselves. They were convinced that they knew better than other people. They just knew that carpet was better than hardwood. Just like you just know that hardwood is way more beautiful than carpet. They just knew that these rules about drink and festivals, that it was just better. But what's it based in? Imagine if I got to church this morning, and because I'd had that dream. Three or four days ago, I instructed Michael and the facilities team to go to Lowe's and buy those supplies and fix that water leak. Now, they could go to Lowe's and they could buy the supplies, but they'd have a real hard time fixing that leak because it's a non existent leak at a non existent church. It was just something that I created in my mind. But that's what some of us do with less tangible creations of our mind. We try to fix problems that don't even really exist. We try to sort out relationship issues that we've created in our head. And maybe we go and we talk to them and they clarify that there's no problem. And we say, okay. But secretly, we doubt that's the case. Why? Because we're putting trust in our own thinking and our own perspective. I'm begging you. Recognize this year That you're not the first or the smartest to read Scripture. (laughs) That you're not the first or the smartest to try to create some alternative path to figuring this problem of life out. Recognize what we must do is come back to the truth. Come back to Jesus. Because that is the real reality. When we read the Bible, we have what God revealed to us of Himself in the person of Jesus. Notice what Paul tells them. He says, go back to Christ. You've received Jesus. You're rooted in him. Be careful that no one deceives you with philosophies, traditions, basic principles of the world, and not Christ. Go back to Christ, because what does Paul say? Because the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily. Jesus is who you must go back to. We just finished 52 weeks of looking at the writings of Luke. And I really, the reason we did that is because coming out of the pandemic, coming out of quarantine, I wanted us to study the book of Acts. I wanted us to get back to the heart and the spirit and the mission of the church. And if you'll remember, right after quarantine, we looked at Acts. We talked about it a good bit. We had a whole sermon series on being sent But I wanted us to look at Acts more, but I recognized that looking at Acts would do us no good if we didn't understand that all that they were doing was based upon, rooted in, the person of Jesus. And so reading Luke's writings gave us this great framework for let's focus on Jesus again, and then we'll understand what it is that we're to be in the church. What are we doing in 2022? We're once again coming back to who is Jesus And we're focusing on this particular moment. All of the the gospel writers tell us of the teachings and the actions of Jesus. Luke recorded all of us, all of that for us. But what we have done here is we're focusing in on one particular passage where Jesus tells us about himself, most specifically about his heart. In the book, Ortland points out, what Charles Spurgeon had pointed out before him, that out of the 89 chapters of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is the only place where Jesus speaks himself about his heart. His heart. He tells us what kind of heart he has. And what we're going to do over these next several weeks is let's look at the heart of Jesus because as scripture tells us, that's the, that's the summation and the foundation of who we are. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If we can transform the heart, the rest of the life is changed. Why? Because the heart is the foundation and substance of who we are. And as we get closer to the heart of Jesus, we get closer to the fullness of the Godhead. I read years ago um, that when we dream, the beginning of our dreaming the beginning of the cycle of dreaming, is really just a playback of our day. It's a playback of our short-term memory. And basically what our brain does, I mean, you think you go through scenarios again and again, that's what your brain does at night, right? Your brain plays back the day, plays back key memories from the day, looking for solutions to problems, recording it in your long-term memory. And as it does that, it plays it again and again and again. But with each loop, it gets a little weirder. Because it's doing kind of a free association experiment. Well, if this was different, if this was different. And by the time we get towards the end of our sleep cycle, it's super weird. It doesn't look like anything that we experienced the day before. But if you wake up in the middle of a dream, it might feel like, oh, I, I, in my dream, I was talking to my brother-in-law. Because yesterday, I talked to my brother-in-law at our Christmas dinner. But if you wake up at the end, it's like, oh, I was talking to my brother-in-law in space about Einstein's theory of relativity, and I don't even understand what that means, right? But what this tells me is that even in our sleep, our brains are working. Even in our sleep, we're trying to solve issues. Maybe that's why we're tired all the time. Even when we're sleeping, we're overthinking. Even when we're sleeping, we're trying to fix problems. And in Matthew 11:28 to 30, the theme passage for this entire study, Jesus says, "Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus invites all who are tired, all who are weary, all who are under a heavy load. You know, it's interesting to me that everyone needs sleep, right? Like it's not just for those of us who are out of shape. Even Olympians need sleep. In fact, they often need more sleep than we do because of the strenuous training that they do and the rebuilding of their muscles. Pro-athletes sleep more than any of us. Maybe that's our problem. We just need to sleep more. Sleep is not for the weak. It's something that we all need. I hear that again. Sleep is not for the weak. It's something that we all need. And we know that. We don't really believe it, though, right? Because if somebody calls us and we were asleep and we wake up, <clears throat> we try to clear our throat so it doesn't sound like we just woke up. And then they say, oh, did I wake you up? And go, oh, no, I've been up for hours, right? <laughs> we, we pretend that we don't sleep. Um We're all in need of sleep, and we can all identify with being tired and weary. Every one of us can identify with that. And probably all of us have viewed the current phase of life that we're in as the craziest phase of life we've ever been in and the most tiring. And for those of you that are retired, you probably smile and chuckle to yourself when younger people talk about being tired, and you think, oh, just wait till you can't stay asleep. Just wait till your your joints ache and keep you from falling asleep. Those of us who have kids, we smile and we kinda chuckle to ourselves when people who don't have kids talk about how tired they are. Those of you who don't have kids, you kind of smile and chuckle to yourself when people who are in college talk about how tired they are and you think, man, just wait till you have a job and you have to pay your own bills. Those of you who are in college, you think, man, when high school kids talk about how tired they are, just wait. And we're just constantly moving into new phases of life that take our energy and wear us out. And it's such a common experience So there's a whole market of sleep products that promise us a better night's sleep. And how many commercials start with something like, Are you tired of being overweight? Are you tired of having no money? Are you tired of this? Are you tired of that? Why? Because it's something we can all can connect with and relate to. We all know what it's like to be tired, and we don't like being tired. But we're tired. And there's a lot of people promising to give us rest. There's a lot of people struggling to find rest. But there's only one place that we can truly find rest. And I'm not talking about rest for our bodies. I'm talking about rest for our souls, rest for our hearts. There's only one place where we can find that true rest, and it's in Jesus. He says, come to me, all who are laboring and under a heavy burden, and I will give you rest. Now, when this passage occurs, if you look back at verse 25, it says, at that time, Jesus gives this discourse At the same time, he's been talking to cities, preaching about cities who they've had the truth of God revealed to them, and they didn't respond to it. He says, it'll be better for you, it'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it will be for you. They had revealed truth, but they were attempting to find their own hope and rest apart from Jesus. They had the truth about who God is, and yet they were constantly striving and searching and Jesus looks at them with condemnation for their constant creation of rules, their constant trust in the law, their constant hope in government and politics and rulers and authority to save them. He condemns them for all of that, but he also pities them because he can see why they're struggling. He sees why they're always striving and fighting, why they're always desperately searching for, For a solution. Desperately searching for rest and peace. Our brains work through the night. To find solutions to life's problems. And we throughout our lives. Work to solve life's fundamental problem. This angst. This weariness. This tiredness that plagues us. And some of you to try to find rest for your souls. You've created a long list of rules and goals and things that you're going to do that once you accomplish them, once you have them, then you will feel like you can rest. Others of you, you've created this alternate reality in your brain where you are the main character of the story and everything is about you. But even that doesn't give you rest because then every slight is about you. Every wrong action is against you. And some of you have given yourselves over to all manners of escapism, to drink, to drug, to sex, so that you can forget about your weariness for a moment. Jesus, in this same passage, brings both condemnation and pity. He speaks of judgment, but he invites us in. He welcomes us. He calls us out for our constant striving and trying to solve our own problems He says, you can't do it on your own. But then he welcomes us in. In the book on page 20, Ortland says, you don't need to unburden yourself or get yourself together or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. He says, your very burden is what qualifies you to come to Jesus. He goes on to point out in the next page that Jesus Christ's desire that you find rest, that you come out of the storm, that you come to him. Jesus' desire for that is greater than yours. As much as we want rest, Jesus wants rest for us. And there are a couple of occasions in scripture where we are shown Jesus becoming emotional. And I don't really like that phrase, becoming emotional, because the truth is that we're always emotional. It's just sometimes our emotions become more apparent. Orland talks about a couple of them here. He talks about times that he feels brokenhearted for people. There's another one where it talks about Jesus' mood with compassion. It's when he sees the people. They're like sheep with no shepherd. They're weary. When Jesus sees you, He sees your weariness and he sees your striving and he condemns us but he also pities us and he welcomes us. He says, come to me. I once heard Matt Carter point out that only a person with intimacy with you can say, come here, right? Like if my wife is having a rough day and she's broken hearted about something, I can say, well, come here. And I can give her a hug. I can comfort her. My children fall and they get hurt and they're crying. I can say, come here. And I can hug them. I can comfort them. Why? Because I have a relationship with them, right? I can't walk into the gas station, see someone chewing out the teller and go, hey, come here. <laughs> Why not? Why can't I come for that person? Because there's no intimate relationship, right? I mean, I could do that. I'd probably get hurt, you know. They might come at me. They wouldn't come here, right? I mean, it, it requires intimacy to be able to bring comfort. And when Jesus has come, he doesn't just look at us with disdain, He sees our brokenness and he sees our inability to fix our problem. He sees our constant striving to solve our problems on our own. He sees all of that, but he yet pities us and loves us and says, come. Come to me. When I say come here to someone I love who's troubled, I open my arms. And what am I communicating by doing that? I'm saying I'm available for a hug. I'm saying, come here. Let me let me hug you. Let me embrace you. I'm opening my arms. I'm opening my myself. I'm saying I am accessible. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me and learn of me. Follow me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And those words mean I'm humble or I'm accessible. Jesus is saying, my arms are open to you. Come to me. I welcome you. I want to comfort you. I can see that you're weary. I can see that you're brokenhearted. I can see the burden that you're bearing. Come to me. And when Jesus left heaven and came to earth as an infant, when he walked among us, wore sandals and got his feet dirty, Walked in the heat of the sun and sweat on his brow. Felt the thirst and hunger and disappointment and heartache and weariness that we feel. It's interesting that the gospel writers tell us again and again about Jesus taking naps. Which we all love because we're like, I'm going to be like Jesus and I'm going to take naps. But think about what that means. The God of heaven put himself in a position to get tired like we get tired. And by doing that, by coming to be among us as one of us, to live this life that we live, he was opening his arms to us. He was becoming intimate with us. He was drawing near to us and then inviting us in. It's for that reason he can say, come to me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So how do we do that? Right? I mean, in that moment, when I say, come to me, to my wife or to my child, they know. Just walk to me. How do we do that with Jesus? Well, look at what he says in verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And then he says in verse 30, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, the idea of a yoke is foreign to most of us. So let me clarify what that means. Maybe when you hear the word yoke, you think, is that, is that the thing in an egg? No, it's yoke. A yoke, and after service, Google it. You'll see a yoke is this harness or a piece of wood with straps that would go across two oxen. Or two donkeys. And so then together as a team, they could pull the plow or the cart. Working together underneath that yoke. And when someone in Jesus' day wanted to become a disciple or a student of a mentor, they would come to them and say, I want to be your student. They wouldn't go through this process of getting accepted to college and taking the SATs and getting their finances in order, they would go to them and say, I want to be your student. And they would follow them around like an apprentice follows around a plumber or a carpenter that they're going to learn from. They work alongside of them. And they would say, take my yoke upon you. And they would work alongside, side by side with that teacher. So what Jesus is saying when he invites us to come, is he's saying, come alongside me. Follow me and learn of me. He's saying, be my disciple. Walk with me. Learn of me. And you'll find that I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will have rest. Here's the thing about a yoke. You have to pull together. Do you remember the uh, three-legged race when you were in elementary school? Right, you you tie your ankle to the other person's ankle. How are there not more injuries in that race, right? And you have to you have to time your running together, right? You've got to move that inside leg at the same time because you're tied together, and you have to move at the same pace. You can't say, "I'm going to win this race for us. I'm going to run ahead." You you got to move together. Paul would warn us, he would say that marrying someone who is not a believer is being unequally yoked because they're pulling in opposite directions. And if you're pulling in opposite directions, there's there's this constant tension. Jesus invites us to his yoke, to come alongside him. And here's what we do. Jesus, that sounds great, but we got to go this way. Jesus, that sounds great, but I want to move fast. Jesus, that sounds great, but I got things to do, people to see, promises to keep, miles to go before I sleep. Come on, Jesus, let's move. John Mark Homer says, the secret to the easy yoke that Jesus speaks of is to match our pace to the life of Jesus. We can't run ahead of him. We have to walk with him when we match the pace of our life to that of Jesus, the way of Jesus becomes easy. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In the book, Ortland says that taking the yoke of Jesus is light because what the yoke of Jesus does for us is like what helium does for a balloon. Adding helium to the balloon does not make it weigh more. Makes it way less. And adding the yoke of Jesus to our lives and walking alongside of Him does not make our life more difficult. It gives us rest and peace. Will you take the yoke of Jesus and walk alongside of Him? And some of you, you you're a Christian, you believe in Jesus. You've committed your life to follow Him, but at some point, because of the craziness or the most recent crisis or pressure, you've tried to run ahead of Him. You've tried to take off on your own. You've tried to solve your own problems. Take His yoke upon you. He is gentle and lowly. He welcomes you. Walk with him.